Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightman. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Zarling. And our guest today is Pastor Ethan Cherney of Menasha, Wisconsin. Welcome, Pastor Cherney. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Ethan, uh, why don't you tell us... uh, about your ministry right now at Bethel and Menash, and then later on we can talk about where else you've served. For sure. Uh, I've been at Bethel and Menash for about two years now. We have um, a congregation that is bilingual. We do work in both English and Spanish. Um, There's actually two of us here, two pastors. Both of us are bilingual, so we can both um, shepherd everybody. It's kind of nice to not have to compartmentalize the congregation into language or cultural groups that way um so we get to each of us do everything and um it's been it's been good it's been we've been chugging along so if you want to explain to our listeners what does that mean to be in a bilingual parish you know how do you do your bible studies your worship service and so forth with the two languages Sure. Uh, the English side of things is obviously much more established and uh, longer running, and there's just more of them. So that tends to be most of the focus of a given week. Um, but as far as worship goes, we have um, an opportunity to worship in English, uh, several of those, and then one Spanish service um, every week on Sundays. Um, the times are about to change, so I'm not going to say what they are um, because then this will be dated. Um, but uh, what I usually do is uh, when I'm up to preach, I, I write my sermon in Spanish and then translate it on the fly into English while I'm preaching so that I'm ready to go for the Spanish service. Um, and then we do we typically do all, all the preaching on a given weekend, um, both English and Spanish. We have had some kind of um ad hoc opportunities for bible class but we don't we don't have a regular bible class in spanish um we do our regular regularly occurring sunday morning bible class is usually just english um and then we have an english as a second language class that has been going on for quite a long time probably a lot well definitely longer than we've had english or spanish services we've had an english as a second language class tuesdays and thursday evenings and we have usually a spanish devotion after the thursday night one and and then we try to sprinkle in as many bilingual worship opportunities as possible. So like um, we're recording the day after Ascension and our Ascension service on Thursday night is always um, a bilingual service. So I had to I had to preach in both at the same time last night. So, what does that mean? Preach at both? You spoke one <laughs> sentence in Spanish, the next sentence in English or what? Uh, no, uh, we, we do everything. We have to say everything because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Um, but we, uh, we, we've we done it in the past where you do like a bigger chunk in English and then do it again in Spanish um, or, or something like that. Last time we tried something new where I kind of did it by thought, you know, so I would say a thought in one language and then just make sure I repeated it in, in the other language and just went through the whole sermon like that. I think I like that better it's a lot more work but um it seemed like people were listening because otherwise you get them to, you know they just completely tune out when they're hearing a language that they don't speak i had a bilingual member at my previous congregation that i did a sermon that way for um and he said it sounds like you have just the weirdest stutter so 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 jeremy is the ger- german teacher at shoreland so jeremy are you good enough in your german skills to be able to write your sermon in German and then just 
translate it on the fly and preach it in English? Um, yeah, I think English, uh, uh, the foreign language to my mother tongue translating would be easier than like taking a, an English sermon and then trying to translate that. I feel like that would be harder. For sure. But, yeah, that, that's the approach. Uh, no, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I'm always interested in. So I got to serve a congregation that was I was the last pastor to serve them in German, uh, and then the oh, one wow. that they called after me didn't. Uh, they they finally decided to stop calling German speaking pastors because there were so few people that were attending who were German speaking anyway. And okay. what I found was that there were really, in essence, two congregations. There was there was the Germans and then there was the regular English congregation. And so right. getting to see that after, you know, a hundred years or whatever of perspective has always made me interested in multilingual uh, uh, ministries like this. And I'm always wondering what, if anything, are you doing to integrate the, the two different language groups into one? And it kind of sounds like this, method of having the services is a way that you're doing that but do you have other ways that's that's one of them and i'd say that's the most deliberate way that we integrate them otherwise when we do um like fellowship type events um if they are focused around food then then they're integrated then then we've got everybody um the the kind of the immigrant experience is always that you know mom and pop are probably never going to be totally comfortable in the the new language and kids are 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 doing a terrible job of holding on to the old language so like most of the families integrate themselves in kind of that weird way um so we'll we'll do things like um fifth sunday of the month will be a bilingual service for the spanish service um but every sunday um in spanish we do a brief um introduction to the sermon in english it's, it's like what some people do for a children's sermon we do that um but it's not specifically for the kids even though it is um it's just a, it, an english summary of this of what you're about to hear in spanish so we try to do those little things mostly just to kind of keep um the kids who are losing their spanish um involved they understand quite a bit in my experience um they, they just speak so much less of it because uh, they don't use it at school um so that's those, that's kind of those little things, and then um, when we're doing like individual type work, it's just easy to bounce back and forth between English and Spanish, and and having two guys helps us focus, uh, uh, helps people see that you know um, my pastor is either of them rather than thinking of the guy who speaks Spanish is for them and the guy who speaks English is for me or or, or whatever. But like you said. You you guys are like a rare congregation in the Wisconsin Synod that yeah. have two bilingual pastors because most yeah. that are even trying to do this, it's hard for them to even get a single bilingual pastor. Right. Uh, I mean, the workers are few and there's even fewer of us who are bilingual. Um, but I was, uh, I was performing one of my first funerals here and I was talking to somebody afterwards and I heard him in the hall relating to another person that, you know, this congregation has two bilingual pastors. Isn't that something? And I heard the other old guy say, what an incredible waste of resources. <laughs> um, so that felt made me feel good. <laughs> but then I, <laughs> but then I relayed that um, 
that story to my wife and she built me up and she encouraged me by saying, you know, like it would actually be, it's often a waste of resources when we send a guy to do this kind of work all by himself and expect him to be able to do that without burning out, like holding two congregations in your head and two cultures and all that kind of stuff. It's, it, it's more work on the front end to try, to try to blend everything together, but I think it's going to prove to be more sustainable long range. Well, and, and that's your your wife is very perceptive. Well, that's why we always marry better than us, anyhow. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we think of that with a congregation if it has two or three worship services on, say, a Sunday and then one on a weeknight. That's really three congregations. For us, uh, Jeremy and I attend the same church here in Water of Life, and we have two campuses with three worship services between the two, and it feels like sometimes two congregations or more. Yeah. And now the same thing, what you're saying is now imagine you've got one guy and he's got an English congregation and a Hispanic congregation or what Jeremy was saying, English and German, and it just right. always feels separate. Right. Right. That's the, one of the things about cross-cultural ministry is it forces you to look at things that are always there, um, but that you can ignore when you have only one cultural group or one language group. And, that, and that's one of the things is that like there are plenty of ways in which our purely Anglo congregations are splintering into groups, um, but you can ignore it because there isn't that big flashing neon sign of they're different ethnically. What would you say to a congregation that's looking to start Hispanic ministry that they they see that, you know, where the congregation is built? And there's so many of our congregations. I know that's where I'm sure you know Tim Flunker very well. We've had yep. him as a guest as our on our podcast that, uh, you know, as he's looking at some of our congregations in the Wisconsin Synod of saying, yeah, the the neighborhood around the church is changing, but oftentimes churches are very slow and hesitant to reach out to the neighbors that are mm -hmm. now around their congregation. So, so for example, like us, Water of Life, especially our Racine campus, we know that we have a large uh, Hispanic population within a mile from us, just south of us. And it's in our long range plans of six years to be able to have uh, multi-language or bilingual services. So for a congregation like ours or others that are looking at the neighborhood, how would you start to do the kind of ministry that you have going on uh, at Bethel? Oh man. Um, well, I, it's, it's complicated. I think, um, it, and it's different depending on each situation, like the congregation that tries reaching out across cultural because they are dying off and have realized that if they don't get more people in, they're going to be gone altogether soon. Um, that, um, outreach is not the solution to those problems. Outreach is something that you do, um, from generosity, not from need to get more people. Um, so that's like always the, always the first, you know, uh, caveat, the first thing to watch for is wh why do we want to do this? Do we want to do this because we love Jesus and those, those people need Jesus and they need to hear about him? Or do we want to do this because we're worried about our future as an institution? Um, one of those is not going to fly no matter how much effort you put into it. Um, and then the the things to watch for I, i'd say for opportunities to to um to share what you've got 
Um, uh, English as second language classes tends to be the, the thing that people start with um, because there's just tremendous benefit from learning the language that is most widely spoken in this country and, and people want that in order to interact with their coworkers, their parents, uh, or the, um, the teachers at school, um, all that kind of stuff. And so if you can offer something that's easy and you know, if you have an Anglo congregation, you have English speakers and therefore you have people who are capable of teaching English, um, that there's really nothing more required than that. And that's why that tends to be such a good entry point for a lot of our, a lot of our folks. Other than that, you just watch for what, what else you can do as far as, uh, how, how do we share with them, whether it's, um, uh, a school is, a, it can be a really good tool. Like you look at, um, uh, what's the name of the school in Doral, um, but they're, they're blowing up and so much of what they're doing there is bilingual. Um, and it's not the, like, English as second language can often get labeled as kind of a charity that we do, which is, I'm not against charity. I'm very much in favor, in favor of charity. Um, but uh, it, it, it's, uh, it tends to be going for the low hanging fruit as far as outreach goes. And um, a school can get you to the more the middle range group of, of folks as if I can put it that way. Um, yeah, so there's, and there's options. Sure, what you're talking about the ESL or English as second language classes. We had mm -hmm. talked to one of our Racine people here that has English as second language. And this was like three years ago, we had talked to this gentleman that they had a couple of place, uh, one place in Racine that they were doing this on a secular government level. And they were hoping to you know, have some satellites. And we said, hey, we would be willing to do that and just have it oh. in our campus. And what he said, and this is why I'm wondering what it's like for in Menasha, where it's, you know, where Racine is going to be different from, say, Waukegan, Illinois, where Waukegan sure. is uh, the, where we have a bilingual there guy there now as a pastor. That learning from Tim Flunker is a place where Hispanics are coming. That's their, one of their first places in the U.S. And so they sure, speak right. Spanish and may not know much English. Whereas Racine, there's several generations here, but what our, our gentleman was, and, and it was interesting, he was a black gentleman working on English as second languages, and he was telling us that the people in Racine, most of them speak English, but some of them not very well. It may be like 75% mm. well, but they might feel like they're getting teased because they, they're 25% not so well. Kind of like I was teased when I was preaching in German because my pronunciation was horrible. And so I didn't, I didn't ever <laughs> want to converse if I could in sure. German because it was bad. And so the, he said the English as, as second language for us in Racine wouldn't be necessarily so people would learn English because they didn't know it. It would be learning English so they could speak it better. Sure. So what, what's it like there in Menasha with your ESL classes? Uh, we're kind of in between. Um, like uh, where I was assigned to Green Bay and that's not that far from where we are now. And both of those, both this area and that area are kind of, uh, less transient than say Waukegan or even like Milwaukee, um, which are kind of like immigration factories where they just, that's, that's where they land and, um, they disperse from there. And so there's a lot of turnover in our Hispanic outreach in particular and, and in locations like that. We don't have as much of that, um, people who, 
are coming to Menasha, Wisconsin, are coming here on purpose. Um, and that purpose is almost always because there's already family here or um, because they already knew about a job that was here. Um, and so the, the, uh, the folks we interact with tend to be um, long range um, here. But we also have, um, we're close enough to more agrarian type areas. So there's, uh, there's some of that uh, migrant work type, type stuff too. Um, so in our English classes, we have a, we have a pretty wide range of ability, and I'd say if you if you're focused on um, people who just want to improve English that they already know, I mean that's that's outreach gold because the best way for that to happen is not studying grammar, but it's just practice, and so you just basically put um, immigrants across the table from your members and just have them talk at each other and figure they'll figure out how the language works from that. Um, and then what you're doing is you're building a relationship and that's the basis upon which you can actually invite somebody to church because in a relationship you can love them instead of just looking down on them with charity um but um but we have plenty of people who are more on the introductory end of things um and it's just it's you know learning the letter sounds and all that kind of stuff um and that and those people benefit the most from having a bilingual pastor or two around that we can pop in and be the guys who speak spanish and all that kind of stuff. So is there well, anything? Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. I, I think you said something and, and you're kind of touching on it again. That's pretty um, not uh, radical, but it, it, I, if people don't let it sink in, they, they might miss what a powerful thing it is. And you said that anybody like absolutely anybody in the church who is an English speaker could be a teacher of this. And what would you say to somebody who a, a lay member who just is intimidated and thinks, well, I don't want to mess them up. I don't want to teach them wrong. Uh, you know, I, I can't do that. And, and actually they can, how can they, how, how can they handle that? Oh yeah, man. I'd say if, if we're having a conversation right now in English, then you're not going to mess them up because I'm understanding you. And so if you teach them how to talk the way you do, they'll be understood. And that's the goal. Um, most of them are not looking to write essays or, um, theses or anything like that uh, in English that just want to be able to have a conversation and be understood. So you, you've got, you've got everything you need. And I'm a terrible English teacher because I can translate for them and I can, I can speak to them in Spanish and I can, and, and, and all that, which, and I don't want them to see me as a guy who's going to be strict with them about English. I want them to see me as a guy who will pray with them in their heart language, who will tell them about Jesus and read from a Bible that they can understand without any work at all. Um, so I, I love being not the guy teaching English, but the, the guy who can come in and speak Spanish. And I need, I need help. I need people to then be the other guy, the, the strict one about English and, and drilling pronunciation. And, and, I, and also, I don't sound like somebody from Menasha, and they do. They want to they fit in. Um, so they, they want to sound like you, Joe member. So last question I have for you, Ethan, is, is there anything that you do at Bethel to, to reach out to the Hispanic population that's kind of unique? Because uh, I think of uh, uh, Pastor Gurgle in Attorney in Waukesha. I get his reports as the District Mission Board Chairman, and they just started futsal in their gym. And, oh. and I know, you know, some churches would do like a three Kings festival for epiphany mm -hmm. 
uh, some others. I forget what the festival is called. Uh, where you know, it's right around before Christmas time of the Mary and Joseph that they're not able to find a place in the inn. And the so, Posadas, yeah, yeah. So, is there anything like like that that you do at Bethel? Uh, we used to, um, and sadly, uh, a lot of that kind of went away towards the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to be the church that made really, really good tacos. Um, our Latinos made good tacos, and we would do that. There's a local uh, Latino fest in Appleton, and we would always have a booth that was very, very popular, and that's how we would rub elbows with people and invite people to English classes and do our Spanish services and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, Latino Fest was canceled during during lockdown, and then the year afterwards, and ever since then, um, uh, Latinos in particular have been much slower to come back to stuff um, than Anglos. It was a lot harder for them to lock down than it was for Anglos because, um, you know, I can take two weeks off of work and it's fine. Uh, most of them can't. Um, I can um, quarantine myself in a room of my house. Most of them can't because they just don't have that. Um, so they're all. They're, most of them were pretty slow to come back even after, and they were also pretty slow to trust the vaccine, which, you know, that, that, that is not particular to Latinos, uh, but, but that is something that helped that slowed people down and coming back to stuff. So we're, we're actually still really rebuilding from, from that. And so a lot of like the weird and special stuff that we would do, we had to set aside and, and we've kind of had as a mantra, uh, let's do less better. Mm-hmm. Um, as we add stuff back in, let's make sure we're doing it on purpose and and um, with us with specific goals in mind, rather than just to to have a thing that happens. Um, so, unfortunately, you caught me. You caught me at a bad time. No, that's good. <laughs> no, and and I understand that. I understand that too. Again, in my role, the mission board of you said the Hispanics being slower to come back to our mission churches there in Menasha, Green Bay, Trinity, Waukesha. And so forth. Yeah. And and I think that's important for us to understand. And well, the last thing you said too, sometimes trimming the tree to make it more healthy. That's a that's a big part of what I'm trying to do here at Water of Life too. Is it's okay to to cut some things to be able to grow better. Yeah, I mean, Paul encourages us to be all things to all people, but the church doesn't need to do everything in order to, to accomplish that. Yeah. Do you have anything else, Jeremy, or you want to get into the gospel lesson? Oh, I probably could talk for hours on language studies and things like that, but um, we should probably get to God's word. Yes. Can I, uh, quick before we do that, uh, just put in a plug because this is how um, we got connected in the first place is I I, I have my own podcast. All right. Um, uh, that I, I started uh, while out at my previous congregation in California, started as a result of the pandemic. Um, it's called Dust and Breath. It's um, it's a devotional podcast. Um, so I my private devotional habit at the time was to write a little brief character sketch of a person from the Bible. Um, and then when lockdown happened and uh, we couldn't meet be together, I, th- I wanted to produce more content besides the Sunday services and videos. So I started recording every day um, that that character sketch that little, and turning it into a devotion um and then uh i i i brought it with me when i moved to Menashe and i've tried to keep it up i don't do it every day anymore um i try to do it once 
every other week. Um, but I'm up to 203 regular episodes plus a couple of um, a couple of bonuses thrown in there. And that's one of my members who liked one of my sermons um, and said it would be good for the Raised with Jesus podcast. Um, I had already connected with Pastor Hagen yep. um, over over my Dust and Breath podcast, and, and so there's we're, we're 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 podcast networking all over the place here. Well, and, and thanks for doing that, Ethan, because that's one of the things that's kind of funny is you start just uh, podcasters just interview each other and cross pollinate yeah. the podcasters because yeah. uh, we had on uh, Jeremy's good friend Jeremiah Backhouse. Oh yeah, and. Uh, then we found out he's got a podcast and I was just texting him yesterday that he's got to get recording more because I finished listening to all of his. <laughs> so where are we going to find your podcast, Ethan? It's uh, it's everywhere. Um, yeah. iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Um, let's just search dust and breath. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll bring it up again at the end of our, Appreciate when I'm wrapping it. everything up too. Thanks. All right, Jeremy. Today's gospel, actually, uh, this Sunday's gospel, am I right? Yes. Right. This, this Sunday's gospel, John 17. After Jesus had spoken these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me at your own side with the glory I had at your side before the world existed. I revealed your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have held on to your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they received them. They learned the truth that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. All that is mine is yours, and what is yours is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer going to be in the world, but they are still in the world, and I am, I am coming to you. So before we get into this, you know, where Jeremy was saying that, you know, this is the uh, the gospel lesson for this last Sunday of the Epiphany or the Easter season, uh, seventh Sunday. Last night, Jeremy and I were at uh, the church downtown First Evan for our joint Ascension service, and I was talking to the preacher afterwards, and because he had said in his sermon, "Well, we always celebrate Ascension." 40 days on the spot. And I said, no, we don't. I said, pious Lutherans like us do, uh, like, <laughs> like water of life and first Evan, we celebrate it on Thursday, but others that quaint are, that aren't quite as pious as us, they celebrate Ascension maybe on the seventh Sunday of Easter. So that's why we're not focusing on an Ascension text today. We're focusing on the seventh Sunday of Easter text. So with this text, pious, did you mean to say pious or pietistical? Pious. Yeah. It's a, it's a work of supererogation. Go, go ahead. Keep, keep going. <laughs> so, uh, Ethan, why did Jesus pray glorify your son that your son may glorify you? 
Oh man, I, I just got done uh, putting together the, the sermon on First Peter, which is First Seventh Sunday, which is all uh, all about all about the glory. Um, that th this is what's remarkable to me about the way God chooses to save us is the glory of the cross. That that in that moment you see God's glory most fully displayed in as it can be in our fallen world. That 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 it's that's where God's perfect justice and His perfect mercy collide um, to to show us everything that He is capable of and how everything that He is capable of He has poured into our salvation, um, and that's where our praises of Him come from. That's why, why how we are able to give glory to Him. Um, it's it's all it's all the cross. He's, he's thinking about the cross. Yeah, and that's where I was thinking is His greatest humility on the cross wins about his greatest glory which is on the cross yeah yeah so jeremy with this next one is what what kind of impression do you have of jesus as he's praying in the upper room with his disciples and the reason i asked that is as i was developing the study i have always imagined jesus being very melancholy you know somber and so forth but i'm wondering that there's a lot of power and joy in his prayer with the disciples. So what kind of impression do you get of Jesus based on his words here? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of it because I, I honestly, I'm not sure what to make it. It's, it's not your typical prayer. I once heard a sermon about this where the pastor made a great point and said that, this is a wonderful chance for us to listen to God talking to God. And uh, so what does God say when he talks with, with himself? And uh, that's Jesus talking to the Father. Um, but what's interesting is that he's not, um, he, he's not asking for a whole lot, at least in the beginning part of it. He's not... Um, he doesn't seem to be raising any complaints or problems or asking for any kind of gifts. He's just saying, the, here's fact one, here's fact two. Uh, I, I was with you before the world began, and this is, uh, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. It's kind of like within the Trinity, you don't have to um, inform each other of new things. <laughs> they, can just be, they can just be telling, he's telling him, things that both of them already know. And uh, I guess I hadn't necessarily thought of it as excitement or joy, but when I was looking ahead to your question here, um, maybe that's not a bad way to think of it because I know that when I am nervous or excited about something or my emotions are running high, that, uh, that one of the best things to do is simply to say stuff that you are familiar with already. Don't, you know, don't, don't try to chart new territory when you're when you're not sure how your emotions are going to handle it. And so he's just he's saying some very straightforward things, uh, and and I, I think there there could definitely be a lot of joy or excitement in it. And with that, just to build on it, I was listening to the preachers podcast uh, that's with pastors and seminary professors. That's also on the Raised with Jesus Network, and one of the pastors had made the comment about this and we talked about this in last week's podcast is i've always found these 
few chapters in John's gospel very difficult to preach on because there's so much here. And the one pastor said, it's like an epistle in that so often that you have segments in the gospels where it's history or Jesus with a short teaching, a parable and so forth. But this is really deep stuff where Jesus is just packing and layering things on top of each other, like Paul does or Peter does in the epistles. And I never thought of it that way. And then I realized, oh, that's why this is so hard to, to, to preach on. It's, I think it's easier to teach on like we're doing here, but to come up with a, com, a compact theme and sermon is a little more difficult because when Jeremy hears me preach on this on Sunday, he'll probably go, yeah, he missed a lot. And I probably do because there's so much here. Well, the good news for you is I'm actually going to be elsewhere on Sunday. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you get a pass. Uh, yeah. So, so Ethan, uh, this prayer of Jesus is often called Jesus high priestly prayer because the high priest, one of his functions is often to pray for the people for whom is Jesus praying in this section. I think there's different groups. Yeah. Um, I mean, he starts directing his prayer, but as a prayer between himself and God, but I mean, like, there is no such thing as a prayer that's to inform God of something he doesn't already know, like you guys talked about before. So all prayer is always for us. Um, and so when, even when Jesus is praying to God, it's it's for our benefit. Um, and But then also he talks specifically about us, um, the, those who were given to him, handed over to him by the Father for, for saving, um, and so that he could hand them back to the father as his own. Um, so it's, it, it's, there's a, a neat interplay there between Jesus talking about the father, about himself, about um, the disciples immediately in the room with him listening to it, or, or maybe in the garden with him, depending on when this happens. Um, and then uh, us too. Yeah. In the children's devotion for this Sunday, I pick up on the theme of teaching them that Jesus is praying for them 2000 years ago. And how awesome that is. He continues to intercede for us in our behalf. That's a little beyond the kids because it's beyond us as adults. But just mm. in that room for them to think of, and for us as adults to think of, he's praying for us that he's only a few hours away from being betrayed and arrested, put on trial, suffering and being crucified for humanity. And what's foremost in his mind? His followers, us. So, Jeremy, the Lord Jesus continues to pray as God's son. What gift does Jesus desire to give to his followers because of his connection to the Father and thereby the Father's connection to him? Uh, that they would have his words, um, that they would be protected. Um, are, are you looking at uh, other verses besides one through 11 or no I'm, I'm looking specifically at verse three. Oh, just yeah that they would that they would have his words they would know him um and and know they would know jesus and by knowing jesus that they would know the father yeah and thereby giving us the gift of eternal life he says this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god in jesus christ whom you sent uh and i think you know, tying in what Ethan was saying earlier about 
the different things that we as churches might do. And I think sometimes we do those things and it may pull us away from the main focus and that's giving eternal life to people through Jesus. Uh, so then Ethan, in verse 10, Jesus says that his disciples had brought him glory. What did he mean by that? I think it times back to the original thought, right? That, that the disciples and us, we glorify Jesus by being the people he saved. Um, so there's, there's a, immense glory for God uh, that we're so wretched and so lost and so um, without hope and that he steps in and changes that. So there's, there's glory to be won there. Um, and then once because that glory has been won um, of, of saving us, though because we have been won, um, then we glorify God in the world by our lives of repentance, by, by living in the forgiveness that he won for us, by, by being who he made us to be. So Jeremy, Jesus says, I am no longer going to be in the world, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. So what dilemma would the disciples now face? That they don't have him uh, there visibly in order to answer their questions and, and tell them, direct them what to do. And um, they, they need to uh, exercise their faith a little more, um, being able to, to trust him and what he has said, even when he's not there, uh, at least audibly to uh, bodily. Well, how do you say that? Um, He's with them, but uh, not as obviously as they would like. Isn't this what you you kind of lose out on by uh, by 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 bumping ascension to to the seventh Sunday? Is because we had to wrestle with that a little bit last night. That Jesus is not in the world, but still with us, and and all that. Like what what exactly that means? Um, and then you, you you lose it a little bit if you just if you just skip straight to that um, on or, or skip over that and go straight to the, the seventh um, Sunday of Easter as an Ascension celebration. And like now we, after coming down from Ascension, we get to wrestle with this a little bit. So is he, is he talking here about his Ascension or about his death or about um, something else? Like is it be, it seems premature to talk about Ascension stuff on the night before he even dies, you know, like, but is he, is he priming them for that? I don't know. Do you have a do you have a idea a way that you'd be leaning or an idea where you'd come down on that? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I will remain in the world no longer. Verse eleven, you know, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. I think I don't know how that's not the ascension, right? Right. Um, and so, like, is it that even before? I mean, it's like Isaiah, right? Even before the Babylonian captivity, we're going to talk about restoration. So even before the the gruesome death and the three days in the grave that are going to completely shake these disciples to the core, he's not only going to talk about resurrection, which he which he's talked about with them too, but he's going to talk about his ascension as not just a thing that gets tacked on in the end to explain why Jesus isn't hanging around anymore, but but as um, as a fulfillment of a promise that he's always been making 
to to reign over the entire world, not from a place here, but from from the right hand of the Father. I don't know. I just think like it'd be easy to gloss over that. Where yeah, where I was uh, imagining this is, I was thinking of several years ago when my oldest daughter Abby and I were driving somewhere, and I knew she was getting very serious about her boyfriend Brandon, and so I told her, you know, Abby. Just remember, I'm the most important man in your life. She said, <laughs> yes, daddy, I know. And I said, but when you get married to Brandon, then he becomes the most important man in your life. And I take a step back. And, and I reminded her of that just before we walked down the aisle. And I handed her off to her soon-to-be husband. And, and I use that imagery here because that's right kind of what i see jesus doing with his disciples that his disciples then and now we're the bride of christ and jesus is handing us off to the paraclete to the comforter to the holy spirit that now jesus is going to be taking a step back like i do with abby i'm still around i think that's what you guys are talking about with his ascension jesus is still around i'm still around as abby's dad but her husband has is uh, there foremost. And now while Jesus has taken a step back as he's at in his throne in heaven, the Holy spirit has taken a step forward. And I think that's from last week's gospel lesson. I don't know. That's where I was going with it. I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> uh, so, so Ethan, how would God keep the disciples safe in the days ahead? Uh, man, by like putting them through the ringer, dude, like, <laughs> um, so Jesus is about to get arrested and just treated the, about as bad as a human being can be treated. And, and then even worse by suffering hell on the cross and they're going to have to sit and watch. And then, um, and wonder what this all means. But then the the safety comes in, not from like eliminating the the earthly enemies that they're afraid of when they're locked away in the upper room, but but the resurrection happens. And it takes a while for them to process it. That's why Ascension has to be 40 days after the resurrection, because we, we need time for them to just deal with this. Um, it takes appearing to the, the 11 two weeks in a row it takes the miracle of the of the fish at galilee when peter says like i don't know what's going on i'm going to go back and do the, the only thing that makes any sense which is fishing um and like it's, it, it god remains invisible and yet he reveals himself to them in the resurrected christ and then that that's the thing that keeps them safe Eventually, so much so that they get labeled as by his own, by his own name. We get to be called Christians, even as God continues to be invisible. We we carry a resurrected Christ around with us. Yeah, and what I was thinking there is, how does he keep them safe? He keeps them safe. Is he uh, sanctify them? The Word. He keeps them yeah. se separate from the world and yet set apart for God. And there, the sermon theme that that I have for this coming Sunday based on this text is protection provided by prayer. And part of that's based on the hymns that I chose for this Sunday. Uh, they're fighting hymns, fight the good fight, 
Jesus Christ, my sure defense, rise to arms with prayer, employ you, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Those are all fighting hymns. And part of what we fight with is prayer, our prayer to God. And then we're hearing Jesus praying for us. I like the alliteration too. <laughs> there you go. Uh, hey, well, with that, how does, how does alliteration work? For you guys in German and Spanish, I mean, I love using alliteration in English. Do does that work in other languages? Do people like it or not? Um, I don't know about German, but for Spanish, totally. Yeah, um, I, I would say in general, it, Latinos, especially Mexicans, love wordplay, um, and and it's and it's actually easier to do in in Spanish. I find because. Um, uh, because the, the terminations of the words, you know, give you, a, it's so much easier to rhyme because so many words, the whole cliche of making fun of Spanish is that you just add an O to everything, but like, that's a lot of the vocabulary. Um, so, um, and, and, and because there are fewer words in Spanish than there are in English. So it takes you more words to say things. So you can kind of like, you can kind of really play with it and have a lot of fun. And it's difficult when, you know, when we're up for preaching in both languages and you have just like a really solid bit of wordplay in Spanish and it just, it just won't work the same in English um, or, or vice versa. I mean, th even like this weekend, I went, I went with a totally different translation for my Spanish. Um, we usually use uh, the, the, Nueva Versión Internacional, which is the NIV, basically, um, in Spanish. But I'm going with the Reina Valera Contemporánea, which is the New King James, kind of, um, because it allows me to use cognates, um, which, so it's basically the same root in both English and Spanish, so I can stick with my wordplay across both languages. How about you, Jeremy, with German? Yeah, it, it works. We have a close family friend that, um, <clears throat> in growing up, uh, Pastor Cherney's pastor that he had in New Ulm uh, used to have us do mealtime prayers and bedtime prayers and songs in German. And uh, we had a close family friend that uh, spent a lot of time at our house. And uh, she ended up drawing the conclusion that everything in German rhymes because <laughs> there's just everything, everything she would hear was a prayer or a song. And there, yeah, it is. There's a lot of rhyming poetry wordplay that you can do with it did she also come to the conclusion that in german that every word is a sentence long uh no okay because that's that's that my conclusion but, hmm. yeah <laughs> so last question i have kind of uh jeremy is for wrapping everything up uh, so you can come up with any kind of thoughts you have here what comfort do we have as Christians in our Savior's prayer? One big one is that he was praying for the men who wrote the Bible. And so uh, when you're wondering about how reliable their memories were or, or their testimony about Jesus is, if, if you can trust it, uh, he was asking God to bless their writing and their efforts and their preaching and teaching. And, and so you, you can know for sure that this is actually God talking when you read what they wrote down, which are the, which is the new Testament. 
Ethan, you want have anything else to add to that? That's a good one. I, I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't thought of that one. I like thinking about that one. Um, but um, if I would add uh, just the that Jesus um, not only prayed for me but for me. You know, like my life of prayer is not great. It's it's not something I could offer to God as meritorious in any way. I have not earned God's love by praying to him the way I should, but Jesus did. Um, and Jesus' perfect ability to pray sets a good example for me, but it also pays for my inability to pray. And so that I like, especially when he's talking about the glory of the vicarious atonement on the cross, I'm thinking that, yeah, this is this is the kind of prayer that um, my heart of faith wishes I could offer to God um, and that God says it counts for me because Jesus did it for me. And you mentioned too that opening words of Jesus there of glory, you know, glory in his humility, glory in his suffering, glory in his crucifixion. And there I was thinking of Paul Gerhardt's hymn, Lord, when your glory I shall see. Uh, Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood, my royal robe shall be, my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. With these I need not hide me. And there in garments richly wrought, as your own bride, I shall be brought to stand in joy beside you. So because of his glory, we'll receive glory. All right. Uh, then, Jeremy, you want to get into the second reading from First Peter. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, selected verses, and, and a little bit from chapter 5. Dear friends, do not be surprised by the fiery trial that is happening among you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, rejoice whenever you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted in connection with the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or as a meddler. But if you suffer for being a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God in connection with this name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, if it begins with us, what will be the end for those who disobey the gospel of God? Therefore, humble yourselves under God's powerful hand so that he may lift you up at the appointed time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Have sound judgment. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him by being firm in the faith. You know that the same kinds of sufferings are being laid on your brotherhood all over the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So, Ethan, why are Christians sometimes surprised when they're called on to suffer? Man, uh, we this shouldn't be how it, how it goes, you know? Like, Jesus saved us. Uh, we belong to God. Um, so everything should be great all the time, nonstop. Yeah. And is it? No, far from it. <laughs> yeah. So then, Jeremy, what two reasons does Peter give in verse 13 as to why we can rejoice when we're called to suffer? Verse 13, oh, of chapter 4. Yes. Um, 
Well, I can see one reason uh, so that it's even sweeter when uh, his glory is revealed, when when you get to see him face to face. Um, are, are you thinking of the first reason being sort of implicit that it's you get to share in the sufferings right. of Christ, that it's kind of an honor that you get to bear the same badge that Jesus had, which is suffering for his faith. Yeah, exactly. We share in Christ's sufferings. And there I kind of teach and talk about that. If maybe if we're not suffering, it, there's a reason for it, that we're not very close to Christ. You know, people don't notice if we're Christians. Uh, we just spent uh, our my eighth grade apologetics class today. The last lesson was on transgenderism. And we spent a lot of time talking about what's going to happen if they, uh, as they try and minister to people in the world. And one of the questions I had is, what what do you say when people say to you that there are more than two genders? And one of them just said, no. <laughs> that was their answer, no. And I said, yeah, that's that's it. But we talked a lot about what's going to happen to them. They're going to, they said, they've even been called homophobic, transphobic. They've been, as 13 and 14 year olds, because they espouse a biblical view on something that is very worldly. And uh, then they are, they're starting already at their tender age to share in the sufferings of Christ. Too, so right? what, like, we're, we're like, if we're comparing, if we're comparing suffering, which is something that Peter kind of encourages us to do, like they're, the people who suffer from gender dysphoria or for who suffer from um you know the mental health struggles that go along with that and uh, all that kind of stuff that their suffering is at this kind of suffering that sin has brought into the world and it's awful and it brings shame and it and it it separates from god and there's there's that suffering that is just it's it's the thing that we are here to to help bring people out of by sharing the gospel of Jesus with them. And you compare that with our suffering, like you might get called a, a mean name. You might get called a bigot. Oh no. You might yeah. like, like it's, that's not a, it's not surprising that it's happening and, and B it's not that bad. Right. Uh, and that's a good point. And then we did spend a lot of time saying you have to love people. Like you said, that are suffering, that are suffering in these ways that the world is applauding. And we have to say, no, that's wrong. Here's why. Now I love you and I want to help you. And, and so keep reaching out to them. So then what blessings does God give Ethan to those who suffer for him? Um, if we're suffering for Christ, it means we're connected to Christ. That's a blessing. Um, and that God gives us the, the spirit, that, that, that glory that uh, rests on us. We, we have um, more than enough to not not just withstand the suffering but 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 outlast it in the end yeah yeah if we're again if we're not suffering then we're probably living like unbelievers uh and we're not suffering for being christians so jeremy peter is opening our eyes to the blessings we have and we're called to suffer for our lord what reason does he add in verse 16 That you are a Christian. Um, 
Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. If you suffer for being a Christian, don't be ashamed. You know, praise God. Again, like Ethan said, it's, it probably isn't that bad. And I think we should glory in the fact that we're suffering in Christ's name. Um, so I have a, for, for you guys, I really don't know the answer to this one. What does Peter mean when he writes, for the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God? Either one of you t- want to touch that one? I, I, I just kind of skimmed it in my sermon. I just kind of glanced, uh, just a glancing blow at it because I didn't, I didn't want to nail it, nail it down and say something too definitive. Um, but I think uh, what, what we're seeing now in, in the end times that we're in since Jesus' ascension um, is that God's judgment is bearing, is bearing out. And the judgment is not, it, well, yeah, it's that sin deserves punishment. We see that clearly on the cross too. Um, but even more is that there's the distinction between ending up in heaven or hell is Jesus or not. And so that starts, that starts on us. I guess, like, like, do you do you have Jesus? You're going to heaven. That judgment has already been passed on us. And if that's true, that it's already been passed on us, then it's also already been passed on those who don't have Jesus, which kind of what has that 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 open question um, that that verse ends with. Um, that kind of rings uh, both, like the don't worry about what they're doing to you because they'll be judged, but it's also like. Like they're the ones who really need to be pitied here, not not you. That's what I think. Jeremy, you want to touch on that? I, I don't know if this will. First of all, those are the best kinds of questions that I'm. I'm glad you're ask, asking a question that you don't know the answer to. Like that's that's a good <laughs> way to do scripture study, um, or or have a conversation. So. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer your question, but I will. I will do some talking, and maybe by talking out loud, it will. We can get to the answer. Um, one thing that it makes me think of is um, when Jesus was walking the Via Dolorosa, and the the women were weeping over him, and he said, "Don't cry for me. Uh, weep for yourselves and your children. If they do this to a green tree, then what happens to a dry tree?" Um, that kind of this reminds me of that, that um, if they're punishing the innocent son of God this severely, then what's the punishment going to be for people who actually deserve it? Um, it mm-hmm. also kind of makes me think of the, uh, I think it's in James where he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because teachers will be held to a higher standard of judgment. And then and then maybe the last thing it makes me think of is um how the dead in Christ will be raised first. So on judgment day, maybe it's just kind of a chronological thing that um, the the first ones to be raised are going to be the dead in Christ. And so uh, they're also going to face the judgment first. And thanks to Jesus, we know that they are declared not guilty through faith by grace alone. but uh, that's that's where judgment begins, and then um, it's going to continue, and it's not going to be as pleasant for those who are unbelievers. 
And maybe the way I, I think of this too, tying it into maybe some Old Testament stories of judgment beginning with the household of God is that uh, just like God is bringing judgment on Egypt with the plagues, well, those at least with the first few plagues, that judgment upon the Egyptians fell upon the Israelites too. Or as God brought his judgment upon the, the unbelievers in Israel with the Babylonian captivity, well, those that were faithful to the Lord, they endured that same Babylonian captivity. They had to deal with that too. And they're you know, bringing it to judgment at the end, uh, end times that God's going to bring his judgment on the unbelievers, but we as Christians, we're going to be judged too. So those are the way, I guess that's the way I would answer it as well. Uh, Jeremy, jumping uh, later on, why does, if the Bible teaches that Jesus has already defeated Satan on the cross, why does Peter say that Satan can devour us? Because, um, if you don't want to be found in Jesus on the cross, then you are easy Easy prey for the lion. Yeah, so the I always point our our people to the the wording that's right underneath this stained glass window at our Racine campus is, uh, "No one shall pluck them out of my hand." And as long as we're close to Jesus, the devil can't get at us. But when we're away from him, yeah, then we're easy pickings for the devil, who's a roaring lion. He's an ancient serpent. He's a seven-headed red dragon. Ethan, what hope does Peter give us when we're called to go through temptation? Um, the, like even in the the exhortations that come at the in the second half of the reading, you know, um, it's always reminding us of who's really in charge. You know, if if suffering were just a thing that nowhere we're in control of, and it just happens to us willy nilly, then we'd have to we'd have to despair. Um, but uh, but Christians approach suffering with humility because we recognize who's really in charge, and that means that not we cannot suffer in in a way that will mean that God has abandoned us. We cannot suffer in a way that will be too much for not for us, but for the strength that He provides. Um, he's there for all of our anxieties. He gives us the faith that enables us to resist the devil. Um, like every every single thing he has to say about suffering in this whole reading um, turns us back to the power that we have, which is not ours, but comes from God. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up with this question, Jeremy. When we go through suffering, it can often seem like, or at least feel like we're going through it alone. And Satan wants us to think that way uh, because then we're easier prey. How does Peter encourage us? By writing everything that we just read. <laughs> nice. It uh, says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Yeah, and, and there I was thinking in verse 9, resist him by being firm in the faith. You know that the same kinds of sufferings are being laid on your brotherhood all through the world. And they're understanding that I, I hear this from people. I'm sure you do with shut-ins too. I heard it just this week. Well, yeah, I'm going through a really tough time, but I think of that other people are suffering worse than I am. 
Well, there's not a whole lot of, they're trying to find comfort in that. That's not really comforting, I don't think. I think it's comforting to know my fellow Christians are suffering persecution and I'm not alone, that there is that unity of faith that Christ brings us into through baptism, uh, through our confirmation of faith of why we're members of the Wisconsin Synod. Uh, and so we can suffer and encourage one another because we have Christ giving us that encouragement that he prayed for us and he continues to pray for us. Anything else you guys want to bring up with in connection with these two readings? I don't know. I got a lot more to say on it, but I'm saving it for Sunday. All right. Sounds good. Jeremy. I am also set. All right. So we'll wrap it up here. A couple of things I want to uh, remind our listeners about one is Ethan's podcast. You can find it everywhere. He says dust and breath. Uh, you can also listen to uh, my hymn devotions that are on the raised with Jesus podcast every Friday morning. And then uh, pastor Peter Hagen, we mentioned him before he and I are going to start a new podcast uh, in June. It should be in the beginning of each week where we're going to go through my book, Resisting the Dragon's Beast, and kind of talk things through. And it'll probably be a shorter podcast, you know, 30 to 45 minutes is our goal. Uh, but again, watch for that in the beginning of June. So this is Michael Zarling with Ethan Cherney and I Saw the Lightning by Hank Williams. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>